Welcome to the weekly teaching podcast of Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas, recorded live at 2828 Crossover in Fayetteville, Arkansas. For notes and resources accompanying this teaching, visit gracechurchnwa.org. Thanks for listening. We're glad you're here. Hospitable, to say the least, for us, and we're very, very grateful. Uh, I'm not a member of the teaching team, but about, uh, what, two months ago, John Ray asked me if I would fill in for him this Sunday, and I take what John Ray says seriously, and so he gave me my choice of either Berea or Philippi, and I knew at once that I wanted to talk about some things out of the letter to the Philippians, and so that's what we're going to do today. Several weeks ago, uh, Chris Lawson brought the message, and I remember he had several artifacts. Now, I didn't quite understand what an artifact was. Went home, looked it up in the dictionary, Chris, and I finally figured out that what he meant by artifact is sort of what I mean by a visual aid. And I learned from Chris Lawson that that's part of the assignment. So I came with my artifact. This is my grandson Landon's Baltimore Orioles baseball cap. A souvenir from a night at Camden Yards in Baltimore where we watched the Baltimore Orioles defeat the Pittsburgh Pirates. Wonderful evening that turned into a really scary moment for Poppy. I grew up in the Washington, Baltimore area. I know the territory pretty well. But uh, that was 50 years ago. And the place has changed a lot. And uh, we set up shop in the Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C., and drove from there in our rental car to Camden Yards in Baltimore to see the game. The game was over around 10.30, quarter till 11. We went out, got in our rental car, and headed back to the hotel in uh, Alexandria. And I thought I knew what I was doing. That's always a bad sign. And before too long, to my great surprise, I realized that I was lost. And shortly after I realized that I was lost and didn't exactly know which way Washington, D.C. and Alexandria, Virginia were, I glanced down at this little red light that was there to alert me that I was running out of gas. Sheer terror. Uh, Landon was a trooper on the trip. He was a brave little traveler, but A, he was homesick, and B, he was feeling some insecurities about being in, quote, our nation's capital, end quote, and all the uh, hundreds of thousands and millions of people uh, he was a little anxious about all that, and, 
It was almost midnight. We went mile after mile after mile looking for a gas station. And as we didn't find one, the panic in my heart grew and grew. And I didn't want to be the one to have to tell Landon, we're out of gas. We're stranded at midnight on a back road here somewhere between a cow pasture and a tobacco farm. And this is where we're going to have to spend the night. I didn't want to have to. I prayed fervently. Believe me, I, I prayed fervently, hoping that Landon wouldn't notice how terrified I was. And as he so often does, God heard the prayer. God had mercy. I found a gas station before we ran out. And you better believe me, for the remainder of that trip, the gas tank never fell more than a quarter of a tank. I would fill that thing up every 50 or 60 miles. I didn't want to be running on empty anymore. Emptiness frightens us, doesn't it? The fear of being empty sends us off on a desperate search for something that will fill us up again. We don't like running on empty. And when we find something that promises to fill us up, we grasp it tightly, don't we? We cling to it. We hold on to it. All in the name of what we Americans like to call, especially on this weekend, the pursuit of happiness. Remember that phrase from the Declaration of Independence? That way of dealing with life is just deeply embedded in the American collective psyche. Deeply written into our collective American DNA. Because deep in our hearts, we've let ourselves be persuaded that the secret to a good life is all about what we can acquire and possess and hold on to. You probably heard the line, he who dies with the most toys wins. The truth, of course, is that he who dies with the most toys dies. But, but uh, we, we're in an acquisitive society. And when we acquire something, we grasp it, we cling to it, we hold on to it, hoping that here at last we will find, here's the key word, fulfillment. Fulfillment. Being filled full. <laughs> we just don't want to be running on empty. It scares us to death. But the God of the Bible seems to have quite a different take on emptiness. He's a God, after all, who creates ex nihilo, literally out of nothing, and you don't get any emptier than that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without shape and empty. God created out of emptiness. 
indeed, out of nothing. It all began with total emptiness, which provided God the opportunity for putting on a display of God's creative power. Not from something, but from nothing. Not from fullness, but from emptiness. God created the universe. And in just the same way, when a runaway world needed nothing more than to be renewed, remade, redeemed, indeed recreated God in the person of his Son, turned loose of all that was rightfully his. He emptied himself, and out of his emptiness came a new creation for all the world. I believe that's what lies at the heart of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Probably most of you know the familiar story of the Philippian church, largely told in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, how Paul saw a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. How he went at once and was arrested soon after he arrived. How Paul and his companion Silas were thrown in prison and were singing at midnight when an earthquake shook the prison and the Philippian jailer and his family all became Christians And maybe you have noticed how the man in Paul's vision turned out to be a woman, Lydia, whose house church supported Paul not only at Philippi, but throughout his entire ministry. Now, nine years later, Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in Spirit, and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish vanity or ambition, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but also about the interests of others. You should have the same attitude, literally the same mind. We might say the same mindset toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God is something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, by sharing in our human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And all the people said, let us pray. Yes, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Our hearts are open. Speak to us, Lord, in a way that will change our lives for time and for eternity. Speak to us, Lord, for we, your people, are listening. Amen. Uh, during a faculty meeting at Hendricks College quite a few years ago, a professor from the chemistry department got up and he just got on a tear, spelling out what were the problems faced in the college and, and how all those problems could be solved and the college be in such good condition if all of his ideas and his pet projects were accepted by all the rest of us. And he went on and on and on. After a while, Dr. Francis Christie, a distinguished professor of religion and philosophy, leaned over to me and said, He's just full of himself tonight, isn't he, John? Full of himself. That phrase has stuck with me over the years. We're just full of ourselves, aren't we? Full of ourselves. Early on in life, I became aware of my own impulse to put my own needs and desires at the top of my list of priorities, whatever the cost to other people. I became aware of my tendency to live by the motto, me first. I'd always felt a little embarrassed, maybe even a bit ashamed of that tendency in myself, my own selfishness. But then in high school, I discovered Ayn Rand. I hear some, some acknowledgement that maybe I'm not the only one. I discovered Ayn Rand for the first time. Uh, she's known best for epic novels, articulating her vision of the heroic individual who defies public opinion, who defies conventional norms, conventional morality, who defies the establishment, who won't be controlled by peer pressure or the expectations of others, who goes his own way to assert himself against the tyranny of public opinion, the tyranny of the majority. Uh, her theme is radical individualism a theme that's best summarized in the title of one of her lesser-known books, The Virtue of Selfishness. I'm not making that up. That's the title of her book. Uh, the Virtue of Selfishness, which is revealingly subtitled A New Concept of Egoism. Here was a best-selling author, an intellectual, for goodness sake, Assuring me that selfishness is not just okay, why it's even a virtue. Some of my most vivid memories of high school involve walking around with other folks in my little circle, carrying a paperback copy of one of Ayn Rand's books, 
to make a statement to prove to everybody who would look that I was a radical individualist just like everybody else in the class of 1965. Oh, we were so full of ourselves. There's a Sufi proverb that rings true to me. We're all doing a life sentence in the prison of the self. Maybe my problem isn't emptiness. Maybe my problem is that I am so full of myself that there's no room for God. No room for you. No room for anyone or anything except me and my agenda. Maybe that's my problem. When I'm full of myself, I can't help believing that it really is all about me. It's easy then to see how that fits into, how that expresses a culture of narcissism, of self-absorption, of self-centeredness. We have created a mass market for publications, for magazines, with titles like Self. Or, get this, Me. Did you know there's a magazine entitled Me? If, if you subscribe to it, I don't mean to offend. But. A mass market for Self, for Me. But you can spend a lot of time in the library or at the uh, newsstand looking in vain for a magazine that bears the title Self-Surrender. Self-Sacrifice. Self-Denial. There's just not a market for it. Even Christians seem to live within those parameters. As they say on Sesame Street, we all live in a capital I. So you see, it's really all about me. Anybody else here like to read uh, the comic strip, The Wizard of Id? The Wizard of Id. I've tried to find the little strip so that I could flash it up here. Couldn't find it. It was 15 years ago anyway. But imagine it. In the first frame, the king walks up to a tower and the wizard, the scientist, the magician, is at the top of the tower peering through his telescope. And the king says, what are you looking for? The wizard said, I'm looking for the center of the universe. And the king said, speaking. You know the type. If I'm the center, incidentally, I made a quick trip to the center of the universe this past week. I hate to tell you this, but you weren't there. And I was really comforted. But when I got back, I realized that if you took a trip to the center of the universe, I wouldn't be there either. But if I live as if I were the center of the universe, then it would make sense for me to go around assuming that it's all about me. I know you think it's all about you, but it's really all about me, huh? 
and that the most important thing in the life of the world is for me to get what I want. The fancy term for that is radical individualism. Me, myself alone, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And so often we bring that same perspective into the life of the church. Now, God is the fullness of being. God is totally self-sufficient. God is just bubbling over with the sheer reality of himself. But the God who is full chose to create the world out of emptiness. Jesus was and is full of God. Colossians 2 verse 9, in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. He was full. But he redeemed us by emptying himself. So you see, we're creating the image of a God who sees emptiness not as a problem, but as an opportunity. We Christians bear the name of one who was ready to empty himself for our sake. What's true for him must be true for us as well. So today I dare to proclaim to you that you will never know eternal life or joy or peace until you're ready to start running on empty so that at last you can be filled with nothing but God. Jesus emptied himself of all but love. And we will know real joy. Not just euphoria. Not just the stimulation of the pleasure centers in the brain. Not what this crazy world calls happiness. But we will know the abiding joy that's a foretaste of heaven when we too, by the power of his spirit, are emptied of all but God. That's what Christianity means. I read the New Testament over these past six weeks, the whole of it. Didn't find anything there about self-fulfillment. Don't believe it's there. Christianity is not about self-interest or self-discovery or self-esteem. It's all about self-sacrifice and self-surrender and self-denial. But most American Christians have bought into the culture of narcissism, hook, line, and sinker, so much so that our strategies for evangelism typically begin and end with an appeal to self-interest. We tell people, in effect, come on down, come to Jesus, because here's where you can get what you want out of life. You want happiness? You want a home in heaven? You want peace of mind? Is that what you want? Well, come on, come on to Jesus, and you can have it all. As Randy Travis used to sing, Jesus is on the main line. Tell him what you want. Just call him up and 
tell him what you want because that's what you're really most interested in after all, isn't it? Even Christians seem to take for granted the culture of narcissism. Even Christians seem to live by the slogan of radical self-centeredness. What's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? So we come to God looking for the good things we think we can get out of him. We come to God in the posture of bartering. You might call it the art of the deal. God has something I want, peace of mind, eternal life. Well, I have something God wants. Uh, obedience to his law and faith in his promise. So I have something God wants. He has something I want. God, can we make a deal? Oh, don't get me wrong. God does want you to have peace of mind. God does want you to have eternal life. God does want you to have an abundant life here and now. But if you come to God for the sake of all that, you're not really coming to God at all. You're just trying to con God, trying to manipulate God. The way we try to con, the way we try to manipulate one another. Just trying to enlist God in the service of our own agenda, in the service of our own, quote, pursuit of happiness, end quote. But that turns God into nothing more than a means to our end. That's the same confusion about ends and means that poisons our relationships with each other. Even what we call love is often just another way of getting what we want out of somebody else. We say, I love you. But what we really mean is, I really love the happiness that I think you'll bring me. And then we take that same approach in our encounter with God. What we really want is not God, because he is supremely lovable in himself. What we really want is the good things that we think we can get out of him. So we transform Christianity itself into just one more strategy of self-centeredness. Just call him up. And tell him what you want. But what does that have to do with the example of Jesus? He was not confused about ends and means. He wasn't trying to manipulate God or bargain with God or get something that he wanted out of God. On the night before he died for you and me, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wasn't trying to bargain with God. He prayed, let not my will, but your will in and for and with me be done. The next day at Calvary, while he hung on the cross and died for us, Jesus was not thinking, what's in this for me? What am I going to get out of this? Speaking of Calvary, when Jesus was crucified... with his arms extended, with his hands and his heart 
open wide, open to God, open to life, open to the divine reality that lies on the far side of the question, what am I going to get out of it and what's in it for me? If following Jesus is all about falling in love with God, if following Jesus is falling in love with God and with all who are loved by God, you would have a hard time coming up with a more complete perversion of Christianity than to turn it into a self-centered strategy for the pursuit of happiness. Yet I think that's what we've done in America over the last several centuries. When we talk about Jesus as our personal Savior, I think often we confuse personal with private. I once asked a Russian Orthodox priest, do you believe in Jesus as your personal Savior? The question that's asked thousands of times a day, I'll bet, in the Bible Belt of America. And Father Raphael looked back at me somewhat puzzled and said, personal? You mean like my toothbrush? And I began thinking about the difference between personal and private. Having a personal relationship with Jesus is not a matter of possessing Jesus as one more item in the store of things that we possess and acquire and hold on to. But, you know, that, that, that possessive uh, private property attitude toward Jesus shows up in a lot of the songs we sing. Hmm? When I was a kid, when you were a kid in Sunday school, did you sing on the Jericho Road, there's room for just two? No more and no less, just Jesus and, come on, you sang it. Jesus and you, yeah. It, it, it's me and Jesus. Uh, the national anthem of the Bible Belt. Hmm? I come to the garden alone. I come to, when Jesus went to the garden of Gethsemane, he didn't go there alone. He, he took several of his friends with him. I come to the garden of alone. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. None other. I got Jesus all to myself and I like it that way. Or as Tom T. Hall would have said, me and Jesus, we got a good thing going. Me and Jesus, we got it all worked out. Me and Jesus, we got a good thing going. We don't need nobody to tell us what it's all about. But what if salvation is not about getting what I want, but coming to share in the life of God? In the life of God whose name, whose nature is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. God is love. Hmm? If God is love, and if being a Christian is sharing in God's own life, don't you need at least one other human being, one other person to give your love to? Can you do compassion in an isolation booth all by yourself? Aren't we, in fact, trying to turn love itself 
into just one more strategy for getting what we want. If the name of the game is compassion, how do you do that all by yourself? Basil of Caesarea, a father of the early church in the fourth century, wrote to the hermit monks who were sitting in their caves east of the Nile River, seeking the perfection of God all by themselves. And he told the story about the Last Supper, how before the sacred meal, Jesus got down on his hands and knees and washed the dirty feet of his disciples and then said, you've seen me do this for you, now you go and do the same for others. And Basil of Caesarea, after reciting that story, says to the monks sitting in their caves all by themselves, whose feet will you wash? Whose feet will you wash? Turns out that being a Christian is not a solo act. At a point early in my life, I went to the Reverend Dr. Bonner Teeter of Tulsa, who became a spiritual mentor to me, counselor, guide. And I said, uh, Dr. Teeter, I, I, I love Jesus. I, I know I love Jesus, and I take the Bible pretty seriously, but I don't know about this church thing. You know? Lots of hypocrites in the church. And he said, well, come on in. There's room for one more. Um, I, I'm not so sure about the church. And he said to me, John, do you think you can have Christ without his body? Do you think you can get Christ without his bride, which is the church? I think the answer to that is pretty self-evident. But maybe somebody here today is still wondering, but what's in it for me? I'll tell you. What's in it for you and for me and for all the world is getting beyond enslavement to that question. What's in it for you and me and for all the world is to be set free at last from the prison of the self, finding the joy that the inmates of the prison of the, of the self seek without finding. What's in it for all of us is the grace of Jesus Christ that's at work to liberate us from the cruelest of all tyrants, the self-centered ego that we have been seduced into mistaking for our true selves. During my 31 years at Hendricks College, I often heard students say in various ways, but basically this, I'm trying to find myself. I don't recall ever having heard one of them say, I'm trying to figure out how to lose myself in something that is bigger and vaster and nobler than I could ever be all by myself. I think I'd like to close then with the inspired words of C.S. Lewis, who goes to the heart of it all when he says this, your real self, your new self, which is yours, which is Christ, and also yours, and yours because it is his, will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you're looking 
for him. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Love your life and you will lose it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you've not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. So you see, it's not too late to begin a new life in Christ, running on empty, waiting to be filled with nothing less and nothing other than God. I believe that's the good news. I believe that's the gospel. I believe that for us today, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Amen. and 
Grace Church was the practice of celebrating the Lord's Supper every chance we get. Every time we come together, we close our service with uh, the Lord's Supper. Another word for that is communion. Communion. And the C-O-M on communion means together. You realize you can't have a sacrament all by yourself? You can't celebrate the Lord's Supper all by yourself. It's a sacrament of our togetherness in Christ. I'm happy to tell you on behalf of Grace Church that uh, all are welcome, all are invited. If you want to meet Christ, here's one of the places where he promises to meet you. If you want to receive what he wants to give, then now as Ever, the invitation is to you, whosoever will may come. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I passed on to you what I also received, how that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Likewise, after the supper, he took the cup, gave thanks to God, and then offered it to the disciples, even as he is offering that cup to us now, saying, This is my blood of the new covenant, Poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink from this cup in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. This too is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the weekly podcast from Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas. If you have any comments or questions or would like to know more about us, visit gracechurchnwa.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram too. We hope you join us again soon. In the meantime, grace and peace and have a great week.